Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 126, The Return of Krupp, The Rise of Hitler. Before we jump back into the story of the Krupp dynasty, let's finish off with the Katyn Massacre. So, as much as the Soviet lawyers and judges tried to pin the murder of the thousands of Polish soldiers and civilians on the German 537th Engineer Battalion, that unit never had more than 20 men, hence not nearly enough to handle the numerous killings and mass burials, nor did the timing line up, no matter what the Soviet report said. Hence the case, as far as Moscow was concerned, was over. When, on September 30, 1946, the verdicts were read out as touching other mass murders, like the 50 RFA officers after they had been recaptured from escaping from the German Air Force prison camp known as Stalag Luft III in March of 44, the entire question of Katyn was not mentioned. To be sure, it was not within the jurisdiction of this court to find the killers, only to ascertain the guilt or innocence of the Germans. And that had been done. Of course, many people knew that General Anders, the Polish officer, had copies of all the paperwork that was found on the bodies. Yet the United States, Britain, nor the Warsaw government asked to see them. Justice Robert Jackson, United States Chief of Counsel for Prosecution at Nuremberg, in 1952 attempted to explain this away, but his argument rang hollow. There were witnesses that could have been questioned and documents that could have been scrutinized. But what it came down to was that the Germans were charged with the crime, not the Soviets, and they were on the Allies' side. Then there was the straightforward, but not simple, reason of political expediency. Soon after the war, even before 1945 was out, tension was on the rise between Washington and Moscow, and each side was looking for as many allies as they could find, certainly within Germany. As time moves on, so does the world and its politics. New pressures arise, which demands either clinging to or eschewing the past, which is what happened in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. In 1989, Soviet scholars published information that claimed Stalin was the one who ordered the massacre. A year later, Mikhail Gorbachev, the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, stated that the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, did indeed execute the Poles. On April 13, 1990, the 47th anniversary of the discovery of the mass graves, the USSR formally expressed profound regret and admitted Soviet secret police responsibility. The day was declared a worldwide Katyn Memorial Day. But it would be the Russian President Boris Yeltsin in 1990 who would release top-secret documents. One was a proposal by Beria, head of state security, that stated some of the 25,000 Poles from various prison camps should be executed. At the bottom was Stalin's signature. And now the return of Krupp and the rise of Hitler. When we last left the Krupp family, the Great War had just ended, and Europe focused on the 
enigmas of Lenin's Russia and Germany's massive war debt. Those in Berlin wished to restructure their payments, which set off the French, and their solution was to occupy the Ruhr Valley, most notably Krupp's. But, as may be recalled, French soldiers ended up shooting into a crowd of Krumpenier, Krupp workers, on March 31, 1923, which robbed the French of any moral authority. Yet they were still game to stay in Western Germany and continue to humiliate their enemy. Still, someone had to be blamed for this debacle, and Paris decided that it would be Gustav Krupp, the head of the industrial works, the husband of Bertha Krupp, the true owner of the company. The trial was a massacre of justice, and in the end, Krupp was found guilty, fined 100 million marks, and given 15 years in prison, which turned out to be a heaven-sent gift to the arms maker. Violence continued between Germans and the French soldiers, but also between the Germans themselves as the democratic government was blamed for the worsening economy. The one man who could not be blamed was the head of Krupp. And how could he? He was in jail. So as the Weimar Republic lost what respect it had among the people, and France's situation and reputation was torn asunder, the Krupps weathered the storm, while their leader became the darling of most German hearts. Gustav Krupp was the embodiment of German pride, German honor. With the occupation crumbling around them, the French decided to pull out, and Gustav Krupp was released only after seven months of internment. And he came home a hero. The concern, as the business was called, was struggling, but Gustav threw himself into it, and now he had the undying loyalty of the Krumpenier things would be worked out. And there was a need for Krupp of Essen to survive. For Gustav, like many Germans, believed their savior was coming. Supposedly, Frederick I, or Frederick Barbarossa, a.k.a. Redbeard, slept in the Kiffhauser Mountain in Bavaria. And when he was needed, the ravens would cease flying around the mountain. The emperor would awake in whatever modern form and restored Germany to its greatness. Stories like this are littered throughout many cultures, but Gustav took this one to heart, and unlike the vast majority of believers, he could do something about it. Projects that weren't panning out were cancelled. Krupp focused on his company's steel, not their weapons, which was, after recent improvements, the hardest steel in the world. Thus many bought it. And in readying Germany for the day Barbarossa came, Krupp did not build weapons. He had his engineers and theorists only design them. To be sure, they were tested, mostly in Russia. But when something remarkable was hit upon, Krupp did not mass-produce it, but merely put the plans away for another day. The idea was to be ready to rearm Germany when the right time came. In the mid-1920s, Gustav believed that his wait was over, that Germany's savior was now on the national stage. However, then Alfred Hugenberg of the National People's Party expressed his desire to bring back a government 
much like the Kaisers, which effectively killed any chance of winning or dominance. Then came along another election, of which there would be many in the late 1920s and early 1930s in Germany. And soon, Adolf Hitler's Nazi party was bigger than the National People's Party, and so Gustav pushed money their way. Bertha, the true owner of Krupp, did not like the Austrian, and never would like him, but left the world of politics to her husband, as was proper. But the Nazi party was exciting the younger Germans throughout the country, including Gustav's oldest son, Alfred. This got the attention of Gustav, and so Hitler got the attention of Gustav. An invitation of sorts was extended to the Nazi party leader, but as Hitler's party only held 12 seats in the Reichstag, his access to the Gustav Fabrik, the main factory, was verboten. Hitler had to settle for touring the historical wing of Krupp's. Still, he had been able to tie his name to that of the arms manufacturer. His goal was achieved. Probably more due to a sign of the times than getting money from Krupp, as well as political support, when the next election came on September 14, 1930, the Nazi party went from a dozen seats to 107 seats in the Reichstag. Now they were only second to the Social Democrats. Hitler would seize this momentum and push his agenda by telling each section of the country what it wanted to hear. To the masses, their suffering was not their fault, but that of the Jews, the foreigners, the communists, and the German elite. However, that last part was removed when Hitler realized his, by now, quite impressive funds from the industrialists were about to disappear. But the Nazis' luck and influence held. In June of 1932, President Hindenburg lifted the ban on the brown shirts. Not that they weren't already attacking social democratic and communist candidates and their supporters in the streets. But now the wave of violence went virtually unchecked. The next election saw the National Socialists accrue 230 seats. Now they were the largest party, yet lacked enough for a majority. Hindenburg offered Hitler various forms of control, a coalition government, the vice-chancellorship, or the top spot, but with limitations. Hitler, sensing his time had come, refused them all, holding out for the grand prize. Ironically, it was Krupp and his peers that had gotten Hitler this far, but Gustav was still holding back, still not quite sure that the Austrian was their man, the right man for leadership. Oh, he gave the Nazi party millions of marks, but he could have given more, and he could have spoken up more. But the Nazi leader did not enthuse the Krupp leader. After all, he was a former corporal, not an ex-officer. There was no Vaughn in his name, and he did not act like a reincarnated king. Men like Alfred Hugenberg, the leader of the German National People's Party, then told Krupp that Hitler should be fully supported, but no, he would not have real power. Hugenberg and Franz von Papen, another influential political and former general staff officer, would control him, guide him to do what was right for Germany, 
and, of course, the smokestack barons. And yet, Gustav still held back. The Nazis got some of his money, but so too did other nationalist parties. When Hitler was asked to speak before the industrialists in January of 1932, Krupp did not even attend. He didn't send any money, but he did send a member of his board to listen and report. The man, not as discerning as Gustav, came back filled with fire for the Nazi platform and its leader. As Krupp respected his board man more than Hitler, he was coming round, and when he heard that Hugenberg had openly joined with the Nazis, the armsmaker was further impressed. Still, Gustav decided to financially back Poppen and Kurt von Schleicher that year. But that's when Hitler went on the offensive. Getting word to the Lord of Essen, Hitler let it be known that he had changed his mind about nationalizing Germany's industry and that he would support the owners of the businesses over their workers and their union groups. Of course, he would still continue to tell the workers that he was fighting for them. But now the kingpins knew where his true loyalties lie. Gustav took another step closer to the swastika. Of course, Krupp knew he had to make a decision. The country was rudderless, its enemies working to keep it down. Still, no one seemed to be the one. Then it seemed, during the November 6, 1932 election, that Hitler had gambled and lost. Unwilling to join with Poppen, Hitler's gambit forced the Reichstag to be dissolved, and another election held. But by now, the German people, even the Nazi faithful, were tired of voting and seeing nothing for their efforts. The men of means felt the same way about all the money they had paid out. The Nazis this time lost two million votes from the last election and 35 seats, whereas the communists gained 11 seats. Hitler's high tide seemed to have come and gone. Yet these very results shook Gustav, who feared and loathed communism. He and a few others like him realized they simply had to choose between the far right and the far left. The current government wasn't making anyone happy, and the left could never really be trusted. As Hitler had recently turned down the chancellorship due to the strings attached, Hindenburg had Kurt von Schleicher form a presidential cabinet early in December of 1932. Incredibly, this man, who had shown such subtlety in the past, made a huge mistake. He went on the radio and, in trying to woo the common people, promised to take the elite's estates and factories from them to give to the people. This pushed Krupp completely off the fence. Taking the lead, Gustav donated generously to the Nazis, and his fellow smokestack barons followed in kind. President Hindenburg, who himself owned vast estates, removed Schleicher from power on January 28, 1933, and on his own two days later, then appointed the Austrian corporal as chancellor. Poppen was made vice-chancellor, Hugenberg was made minister of economy and agriculture. A few days into Hitler's chancellorship, Poppen, just making sure that Hitler understood his true position, 
spoke with the man in private and got the assurances he needed. Poppen then told Hugenberg, We've hired Hitler. And yet, Hitler and Goering had their own plans. Now that Germany had a government, it still had to prove itself by winning, yes, another election. This one was planned for March 5th. The anti-Nazis holding the most powerful cabinet positions did not fear the coming election. Either they would win and keep Hitler under control, or they would lose and the Nazis would be out of power, and Hitler would just fade away, as had so many before him. But what no one took note of was that Goering, now a minister without portfolio and in charge of the Prussian police, would be given a house that had an underground tunnel to the Reichstag. And before the election came, the governmental chamber, it would be decided by the Nazis, would be set ablaze. The communists would be blamed, and the Nazis would put on the greatest political campaign ever. How could they afford this? By getting more money from the industrialists, more than ever before. Now that Hitler was the chancellor, he invited the barons to his residence. But as this was Germany, it was not an invitation. It was an order. Not that that bothered Krupp, for he was looking for a strong man. And if Hindenburg saw fit to put him in charge, then clearly he was Germany's man of destiny. The meeting was held on February 27th, and Hitler told these men what he intended to do. The communists would be brought to heel forever. The Wehrmacht would know glory again and be feared. And most importantly, now that the right kind of Germans had power, they would never, ever give it up. That if he lost, he would stay in office by other means, with other weapons. Hitler became quiet and then sat down, to which Krupp sprang up. As the head of Krupp, he spoke for the other 24 industrialists. He thanked their new leader for his clear-cut view of the future, the correct future. Then the Nazi leadership asked for massive donations to pay for the upcoming campaign. If it helped, it was explained by Goering, the sacrifice asked for will be so much easier to bear if industry realizes that the election of March 5th will surely be the last one for the next 10 years, possibly for the next 100 years. The barons whispered to each other, and like that, three million marks were pledged. One million alone came from Krupp. As was planned, the Reichstag was set ablaze. The communists blamed. The Nazis got the feeble-minded Hindenburg to sign a decree that did away with freedom of the press, the right to assembly, among others. The stormtroopers took to the streets and broke up every non-Nazi political rally there was. And yet, with all this, the Nazi party still only won 44% of the vote, which gave them 288 seats. No matter, when they combined these with the 52 seats of Hindenburg's party, they finally had the majority they sought. And yet, this coalition did not have the two-thirds it needed to make Hitler the out-and-out dictator of Germany. But again, no matter, now that the Nazis had money, smokestack barren money, they bribed those in other seats 
well, enough of them, to push through their law for removing the distress of people and Reich bill. It passed 441 to 84. The thousand-year Reich had become a reality. And it really, truly started with Gustav Krupp finally having made up his mind when the communists won 11 seats in one of a dozen elections. To be sure, Gustav Krupp had not been sure of Hitler at first. He had backed others, given others a chance. But they didn't have that killer instinct, the confidence to risk it all, to win it all. But then Hitler came, and once Krupp decided on his man, the game was over. 